Hey, stranger! The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the cultural work that's inspired them. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks ever so much for joining me. This week, I am chatting with Tanika Smith and Alex Court, authors of Mixed Up, Confessions of an Interracial Couple, which is about... You guessed it. Tanika and Alex's relationship. Uh, I spoke to them about Britt Bennett's sensational novel, The Vanishing Half. So, so, so good. Um, It's a book that covers tons of very complex issues, including colorism in the black community, the concept of passing, and the complexities of both familial and romantic relationships. Tanika, Alex, and I dig into all of it. Uh, There's a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to get things going quite quickly here. But first, a quick announcement. No new episode next week. Aww. Why, you ask? Because it's my birthday and I'm taking a little time off. Isn't that lovely? Uh, If you want to help me celebrate getting another year older, you can send me some lovely birthday wishes on social media or, you know, support the show with some cold hard cash on thesparkparade.com. Either way, whatever you feel comfortable with. So uh, there you go. Now, let's get to the main event. Quick Tanika and Alex facts. When Tanika, a black American woman, and Alex, a white British man, first fell in love, they didn't realize how much the color of their skin might impact on their relationship. But as time went on and as their lives and cultures became interwoven, they recognized how dramatically different their experiences were. In Mixed Up, Confessions of an Interracial Couple, Tanika and Alex open up about their interracial relationship for the first time, and with anecdotes, analysis, and raw revelations, the pair attempt to navigate their new and challenging world, confronting race and relationships in the 21st century head-on. Quick facts about The Vanishing Half. The Vanishing Half is a novel by Britt Bennett, published in 2020. The novel is a multi-generational family saga set between the 1940s and the 1990s, and centers on identical twin sisters Desiree and Stella Vignes. The two light-skinned black sisters were raised in Mallard, Louisiana, and witnessed the lynching of their father in the 1940s. As teenagers, the twins run away to New Orleans. However, Stella disappears shortly thereafter. She assumes a white identity, marries a white man, and moves to Los Angeles. Desiree returns to Mallard with her daughter Jude, who eventually grows up and falls in love with a man named Reese, who is trans. And that kind of covers the basics. It's a little bit of a clunky synopsis, but whatever. It'll do. Uh, So there you go. And now, without further ado, let's jump on over to my conversation with Tanika Smith and Alex Court about The Vanishing Half. 
do you guys remember finding this book? Um, do you do you know if somebody turned you on to it, or like obviously it was very popular, very yes. well regarded. So. <laughs> I think it was me, wasn't it, Alex? I don't know why how I ended up getting the book. So we're in Switzerland, and the book is everywhere. So it's in Switzerland um, as well, and we have like an English speaking uh, section, and. Um, I was really attracted by the book. I mean, it, it was everywhere. There are a lot of great reviews, but particularly because um, it really touched on colorism mm-hmm. within the black community and white presenting. I know some people say white passing, but I think white presenting people prefer. Um, and um, so I read the book and I think I read it in like probably a day. And um, I just was just like, it's amazing. You're going to love it. You're going to love it to Alex. And I really wanted him to read it because I felt like it would give him a better insight into colorism within the black community. And um, especially with me being a dark skinned uh, black woman and um, growing up in the States, I don't think people outside of the black community realize how much dark skinned people are targeted within within the black community. Um, like, it's just like, you know, growing up dark skinned kid, other black kids will, will tease me about it. Or sometimes the people will say, Oh, you're very pretty for a dark skinned girl. And, um, so even though the book is fiction, Britt Bennett really captures the, the privilege that white presenting black people have, but also the struggles with identity, but also kind of the power that comes with being able to decide if you're going to be white one day or the next, and then how that just kind of affects the people around you. Yeah. And I really kind of identified with Jude, who just the whole, the whole book is just kind of made fun of, targeted for her dark skin from white and black people as well. So I just thought it was a great book for Alex to read because I think it could just easily reveal so many nuances that he just wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to explain otherwise. And yeah, you just went crazy for it, right, Alex? You just... <laughs> yeah, I, I totally remember the, how excited you were and you were really on me to to read this book, which is, I guess, not that unusual. You, you do like to recommend stuff to me, but when you were explaining it's about colorism and, and white presenting, that was really a completely new concept to me because, you know, as a as a white a white man, you know, I don't think there are different shades of of white. You're either white or you're not. And within the white community, there isn't that uh, that level of uh, nuance. So I have to say, I was a little um, intimidated, maybe going into into reading it, knowing how excited Tika was. Um, but I really got into it and, and yeah, could, I found so many of the characters so, uh, I was so invested in their stories and, and as I think, as Britt Bennett, she weaves in more characters, she does it in a way which still keeps the momentum of, of the story going. And again, like Tanika, I read it in, yeah, one or two days, really quick. I couldn't put it down and just thought it was um, enlightening and fascinating and just a great read. Mm. And it's like not not just the subject matter, but she's such a skilled writer. She's, yeah, phenomenal. There's 
so, so much stuff in this book. It's so complex. There's so many issues that are brought up in addition to colorism and the idea of being white presenting of, of uh, deciding to live to absorb a white identity. And also um, the idea, uh, you know, not just in terms of color, but for the trans character, um, the idea of moving through the world, presenting as something that is not the full picture of who you are. And I think starting with the seed of this community that is built around colorism. And this small town that is is built on a foundation of valuing light skin and genetic modification, you know, saying that <laughs> through generations valuing light skin so much that it's the, the goal for the entire community is to, with each successive generation, have lighter skin um, and having that as the jumping off point for the book. Yeah, I thought it was... It was, I thought it was absolutely genius and it just kind of already throws you into the plot without really having to, you know, explain the different characters at the beginning. I think that she just, I mean, it's, it's just really wonderful. Like she even kind of weaves in within the community how people abroad would perceive it. Very much kind of a European point of view with the, I believe it's a priest who comes over to the community and his superior has said, okay, well, you know, it's like, it's a community of black people just to warn you. And then he gets there and he's just completely confused because he's just like, I can't tell that they're black or white. Is is this what, um, you know, he just kind of questions the um, issue of, of racism and segregation, you know, based on it. And I think for me as a, um, as a black American who has lived abroad um, in Europe, I, I just thought that was kind of a, a sort of uh, genius moment as well. I mean, there's so many, as you said, so many um, topics that are covered in such a very kind of easy way. And it just, they each flow into each other. And one, I think that was interesting for us as well was the fact that um, she, you, you have one sister that's in a interracial relationship and the other person doesn't even essentially know, you know, that they're in an interracial relationship and she has a child that is, you know, not white and that child mm. doesn't know. And also the fear of of the next of the neighbor moving in across the street who's black because she just knows that, you know, they'll be able to maybe discover who she is. Um she she just kind of touched on a lot of things. even things that I think um maybe people with outside of the black community wouldn't pick up. I just um, love how she approaches it in a almost subtle way throughout the book that makes it very easy for people of all races to kind of understand and, and digest. And, and that's what I really, really love. When when I think that was one of the bits that really struck me when Loretta Walker and her husband, uh, Reg, when, they, when they're moving into the neighborhood and they're this black family and the the people that are living in that neighborhood who are all white, they're, they're kind of scared and they're worried about this arrival of this family and they have a meeting and and then somehow Stella is standing up and saying that this cannot happen, that you can't have a black family moving into that white neighborhood. And there's this assumption that, you know, yeah, there's lots of other nice neighborhoods that they could live, but not in our neighborhood. And when I was reading it, that I almost felt like afraid for, for Stella. Like I wondered, would she be uh, exposed 
in a way, or she'd be forced to admit who she really was and admit her her true family background to her husband and her daughter, even though that she's kept this major element of who she is hidden from her family for so long. And I think that's when I started to really think about each of the major characters that I really started to follow or, or was I was particularly into during the book, they all made these big choices or, or small choices which kind of had um, really like long lasting and significant impacts on their life. Like going back to how when Stella first makes that choice to present as white, it's just for a job interview. And it seems relatively small, but then it spirals and spirals and she has to continue to uphold this this lie this, that she's created. And then you get this sense as the as the walkers move into the neighborhood that maybe this could all be come crashing down. I think it's like also interesting historically because um, back during that time, if you were black and you were white presenting and you passed over into into just living as a white person, if you were discovered, you were killed. So I just I thought I just loved kind of the historical uh, weaving into that about, you know, what could happen? I mean, she literally was, you know, fighting for her life if she would have would have been discovered by a black person or a white person or anyone. Yeah. And something that I've read in in interviews with Britt Bennett that I thought was really interesting is that she intentionally, you know, she had considered the idea of Stella marrying a really racist, overtly racist white man and living in a situation where it was like this constant high tension, really worrying that maybe her husband would kill her if he found out and that she made a conscious choice to say it's Stella living in this polite, upper class, white community, affluent white community where the racism is... I don't know if subtle is the right word, but not as overt and not, you know, not dealing with people who will in front of black people say things that are overtly racist. Their actions are, you know, can be subtly racist. But the idea that Stella as well is constructing her idea of whiteness, not having, you know, li living in a community of uh, light-skinned black people, but not really having any contact with white people until she moves to New Orleans and living in a small town where it's not like she had the internet, she didn't have TV, she didn't wasn't having you know instruction from entertainment or um, in any other place of what a a performance of whiteness would be, and so she's doing it on the fly. She's learning from her environment and trying to kind of assimilate in the best way that she can and. In some ways, she's uh, her defense mechanism is doing the most over yeah. racist things. <laughs> yes. um, so no one suspects her exactly. Right, right. I think I, I love that um, Britt Bennett did that because really it is indicative of of many of the scenarios and, and environments that Black people are in, um, especially when we were living full time in the UK. A lot of a lot of people in the UK take, not a lot of people, but some people in, in the UK have this view that racism isn't really a thing and um, we'll kind of just brush it under the rug, we'll be very subtle, we'll be very polite, but there's just kind of this like tension that people of color and black people will feel um, when microaggressions essentially and and the strength with microaggressions is is that um, it's very hard to call them out and pinpoint them, you know, but the feeling is just the same. So I love that she did that because I mean, it's a reality that many 
uh, black people deal with and and racism isn't always in your face isn't and it isn't always overt and i i think that it's just as dangerous and i think that her neighbors if any of them as polite as as they were had discovered who she was they wouldn't have thought for a second to to turn her over or or perhaps any one of them to possibly um, kill her. So it's almost kind of just that fear that Stella is going through of almost wondering how kind these people would be to her if they knew who she really was. Yeah. And, uh, uh you know, there's a, an essay that Britt Bennett wrote called, I don't know what to do with good white people. That was this big piece on Jezebel. And she's also talked about wanting the white community that Stella is uh, a part of to be full of those good white people that are, again, it's it's uh, in contemporary terms, people who will put a black square on Instagram and say, uh, you know, police brutality is terrible and then, Done. you know, wash, wash their hands, hands of it. Yeah, it's um, over. And I don't know if uh, I ever said this to either of you, but I'm, I'm a British citizen. I lived in London for uh, 12 years, um, so I am you know, uh, <laughs> well-versed in, uh, in British culture as well. And, you know, this is a very different thing. I, I acknowledge this, but I'm gay. I'm Jewish. Uh, I don't think both of those things are necessarily immediately um, to, to people who have no experience of gay people or of Jewish people, things that people uh, automatically assume about me. And there were many, many situations. I mean, being gay, both in the UA, US and in the UK, where people assume that they can say homophobic things and that I'll jump on board and think that that's really funny to, or, you know, uh, agree with them. And um, especially in the UK, where there are far fewer Jews than there are in the US, um, having people say really just off the cuff, casual, um, anti-Semitic things and having that feeling in my mind for Stella, but also for Reese of holding this secret, hol holding uh, their true identity. And especially in Stella's case, having no outlet, having no means of being able to speak to her sister, being able to speak to her mother and talk about the situation that she's in. And there's no release in this just like building tension, constantly having to worry about being found out or just dealing with hearing people talk about black people in a negative way, saying racist things and not being able to push back. And again, as I said, like sometimes participating in it as, as a defense mechanism. And I also thought another thing that uh, Britt Bennett has said that I found really interesting is that for all of the privileges that whiteness affords Stella, her wealth, the relationship that she has, the comfortable life that she has, not having to deal with people being racist towards her, her life is empty because her husband and her daughter can't ever know who she really is. She's lost all of her connection to her family and to her identity. And it's this hollow existence that's, you know, built around a lie. And the, the, the tension of that leads to this just, yeah, very lonely, very sad feeling life. And I think it's really interesting that that tension is never really resolved that, you know, spoiler alert, her daughter does end up um, learning the truth, but that that's as far as it goes. And um, I thought that was a really interesting choice as well, that in a lot of books about people, you know, uh, light skinned black people, presenting themselves as white people and living as white people, that there's eventually this dramatic moment where they're discovered and everything falls apart. And that doesn't happen. I, I think that there's that scene when Jude does 
finally confront Stella outside the theater. And for me, that was what you're saying exactly, like this building, building tension. And Stella gets this one opportunity to connect with Jude and to recognize that, yeah, she's she's built this lie and she is living this hollow life. And she spends her mornings in this swimming pool, drifting on a, a floaty, drinking a, a gin and tonic sometimes. She has this lux- luxurious life, but there's so much missing. And it's that authenticity. It's that sense of identity. And then when, when yeah, spoiler alert, when Jude does, does work out that who she is, she responds with aggression and pushes it away so forcefully that she digs herself into this, yeah, this, this non-existence which she's created for herself. And I think that is, she, she really does suffer from that. It's very, it's very obvious from the writing. But I also like how there isn't this moment of release because it really keeps the momentum of the story going. You want to find out what happens to Stella. Does she ever come true to herself? And you kind of get a bit of a sense of that with her odd relationship with her daughter, they they do she does tell the daughter a few things which they then keep as a secret which which Blake uh, Stella's husband is never going to find out and I think it's a it's a very very mm. interesting dynamic indeed yeah and just just going back to what you were saying Tanika about the concept of microaggressions and I think also gaslighting when it comes to the way that black people experience racism as an everyday thing that it's not you know I think for a lot of white people it's easier to think of racism as Ku Klux Klan rallies and lynchings rather than something that's an ordinary, ever-present part of Black people's lives. And again, in this community that Stella joins, it's, uh, uh, I think, a really essential part of the narrative that it's this polite society where everybody, you know, it's like, it's not that we don't want black people here it's just that our property values will go down and it's better for them because their daughter will have a hard time in a white school so yeah i thought that was a really really interesting part of of the book as well yeah i mean it's it's reality i mean i've i've never had a a situation or know any black person that's had a situation with the ku klux klan or you know had I mean I have been bit on in the street, <laughs> um, but that was by an, another black man when they saw me with Alex. So um, different, but a little bit different. But um, yeah, like most of the racism that a lot of black people experience are microaggressions and very polite. Whether it's someone following you around in the store and asking you a thousand times, "Can I help you?" when you say, "No, it's okay, I'm fine," and then they just follow you and only you around the whole store. And I and I think. It's super important that Britt Bennett made the community like that because I think why the book resonates with so many people is that it's it's very real to what many Black people experience. And yeah, and I've been in those situations and gaslighting as well, extremely real with um, Black people and almost thinking that, you know, you're doing them a favor uh, when you're saying something that, that's basically essentially, you know, racist or, you know, don't get so defensive or, you know, this is just the way things are. I think that it's important because um, in ways, microaggressions and, and polite racism or diet racism, as, as um, some people refer to it, sometimes is the most dangerous um, of all. 
So uh, she's in this polite community, but um, she never knows when she's going to get exposed. She never knows when anyone's going to turn. She never knows when anyone's going to expect her. And it could probably, they could probably have the ugliest reaction of all, at least with someone, a Ku Klux Klan member or uh, overt racism. You know where you stand. You you know what to do. It's easier for you to make a, a survival decision. Um, but in those situations, you you don't really know people. It can, it's very cloak and dagger in a way. So so um, yes, there could have been this tension in her household if she had a, a very overtly racist um, husband. But I think there's still a different type, but still a very thick tension in the fact that, you know, everyone's kind to her and, and treats her well, because you're not able to see their true faces in a way. So it's just kind of like waiting for someone to jump out uh, from around the corner. And yeah, and I, and I think that's why she makes the decision to constantly be the loudest, essentially racist in the room. And she even had that situation where she called her neighbor's um, black daughter the N-word and, and the child repeats it. Um, and then it ruins that uh, relationship. And she has to deal with the fact that she taught her child that word that she you know even even said that word and I thought that moment was just so gosh just like um emotional as well um for her as a black woman to have to deal with that and to actually be teaching her daughter to talk like that to other black people when she in fact is herself black so um I just I I love the way that Brit Bennett just um creates those conflicting scenarios. Um, and I think Stella's in pain the entire time. I don't think she particularly enjoys her choice. I wonder if she, I think she regrets it. I don't know, she just seemed like someone that had no peace, had no rest, where her sister, who wasn't as rich or, or in a privileged situation towards the end of the book, you just see kind of this um, peace come about her and she's able to do what she wants and she's happy with her child and the way that she raised her so mm. yeah yeah and i, I think ha having grown up in mallard where light skin is valued almost above all else and seeing that it's never enough that you know her father was lynched in front of her and no matter how light their skin is they're still black people still know and the only way to avoid that is not only to be white but to be the the, the whitest version of whiteness that she can be and that means saying racist things not necessarily consciously choosing to be racist but this like reactionary it's kind of a, a fight or flight thing like you know she sees her daughter playing with the uh, a black neighbor and it's just this visceral thing that it's like not only protecting her secret but also you know uh, uh thinking about all of these other complex issues in her life and as you said i think the fact that like desiree and, and early have lives that are not perfect you know they, they they have complications their relationship isn't perfect but they have a partnership they're supportive of each other and that's another thing that i found really interesting is it's like the performance of whiteness isn't enough to get stella the full respect from her husband because she's still a woman exactly <laughs> and um <laughs> you know whammy. being a woman <laughs> comes with its its own uh, challenges and the, the uh, tons of prejudices that she faces and thinking about her husband trying to stop her from getting an education, trying to stop her from having a career, from furthering her career, all of those things. And 
the relationship between Desiree and Early, in contrast, is so much more supportive. And it feels like there there are other issues involved as well. Like they're they're honest with each other. They know each other fully. And it makes me so desperately sad for Stella that, you know, even though she loves her husband and it's not like their relationship doesn't have anything to it that is satisfying to her, but that there's all of these elements of it that keep it from being satisfying, truly loving relationship that Desiree and Early have. I think it also has to do with the fact that her husband like feels that she's holding something back. I don't know. What do you think, Alex? I, I feel like he feels something. I think Blake is an interesting character that we don't know that much about him. And I think one insight that really stuck with me is when Stella does make that return to Mallard and she she sees her mom, she sees she sees Desiree, she meets Early, and it, it ends with her handing over her engagement wing or, or her wedding wedding ring as a as a kind of way for Early to, you know, provide to help provide for the family, to provide some some money for her dying mother. And then she returns to her family home. And um, obviously her husband realizes that she's now missing that ring. And he just blows it off like, oh, I think you were due, you were due for an upgrade anyway. And it's that kind of, he doesn't really invest himself so much into his wife's life. He doesn't seem to be that interested in her. And, and, and like you said, he, he seems confused even when she wants to pursue her career and, and get, a, get an education and then start teaching at this, uh, at this university. And I, I find their relationship somehow two-dimensional, whereas what you see with um, Desiree being able to develop with, with Early is, is really authentic and, and I think beautiful. And I think Early is, a, is definitely a flawed character the way that we first meet him, the way that he doesn't, we don't know too much about his his past, his backstory. Uh, but what we do know suggests that he's had a very rough life and he has a lot of, yeah, a lot of demons, I guess. Yet the way that he, he integrates himself into, into Desiree's life and into Adele's life and the way that Adele doesn't accept him, but he accepts that. He kind of respects Adele. And I think it's this solidity of character that Early has which which we just don't see from Stella because she's so focused and so much dedicating her energy to maintaining this lie of her of her whiteness. And uh, I also think there are a lot of interesting parallels between Jude's relationship with Reese and Stella's relationship with Blake. Obviously, the difference being that Jude and Reese do really know really, each other. Really know the each other. the yes. secrets that they have are, <laughs> are kept between the two of them. But there is that other parallel of the hierarchy of passing for Black people with colorism and for trans people uh, in terms of how, quote unquote, convincing they are to cis people um, as, uh, uh, you know, how, how convincing their gender expression is to, to uh, cis people. And Reese excels at that. <laughs> exactly. I, I did find, find that uh, interesting. And I think it was a story, uh, a transgender story that I have not really seen before. And I don't know if that, I guess that also made the relationship with Jude probably a bit easier um, in terms of not having to explain to family or friends that they would just kind of let them assume. Um, and I don't know, I thought it was a, a kind of a beautiful thing because it was just them. You know, it was, uh, they knew each other and they they kept it to themselves. And um I think it made um, them a bit closer 
and mm-hmm. I found you to be just very supportive of of um, everything about Reese in terms of even always not wanting to remove his shirt, you know, uh, ever until he had the surgery and and she didn't pressure him or or make him feel like um, it was an abnormal thing or that um, he didn't have to hide from her. She was just supportive the entire way. So so I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of from you is that story a uh, kind of a typical one that we see I, I don't think I haven't really seen a story like that in particular I thought it was really interesting that it was like a trans story that was a supporting narrative it wasn't the focus of the story and there's allusion to Reese's trauma his you know history with his family and Um, I don't think it's in any way dismissive of the, you know, the process that he's gone through, the journey he's gone through as a trans man and, you know, definitely acknowledging transitioning and talking a lot about, uh, you know, the, the stages of transition that he goes through, but yeah, that it felt like the, the focus of that relationship is their love for each other. And it's more about, yeah, two, two people who love each other. And it's not that his transness is beside the point, but it's uh, a, a part of him. And it's not, I guess, in the same way that Stella is integrated into a white society that isn't overtly racist, that Reese is allowed to exist without having to deal with overt transphobia. Um, and there's the same kind of tension, not, not, I don't think as much tension from Reese, uh, worry about being discovered, but, uh, yeah, I, I really love their relationship. I just, I also thought it was interesting that the tremendous amount of pressure on Jude as a secret keeper, um, you know, Stella is protecting her own secrets. Jude is protecting other people's secrets across the board. And it's not just Reese, it's Stella and, making the choice, protecting the secrets that Reese is keeping because she loves him and is supporting his choice to, you know, not be out as a trans person uh, at a time when, you know, it was, you know, it's still very difficult for people to be trans, but yeah, then um, would be even more difficult. Yes, for sure. Exactly. The the way that I liked, what I liked about Reese was that there's something authentic about his, his journey towards becoming a man. And he, he works at building his identity in, in what is really an authentic direction. And I think that's a really nice contrast to what Stella's doing. She's also working very hard to establish her identity. However, for me, Stella's moving in a kind of inauthentic direction. And I think the way that we we learn about the two of those journeys happening in parallel gives both of them an added layer of complexity. And it shows the way that as identity can really, really shift and change. It's not like there's an end point, I don't think, to either, to either story. But the way that they they progress or move forward really, really interests me for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to uh, touch on is just uh, the the kind of heart heartbreak of the ending. I mean, I think that for me, the whole book, there's this the attention wondering whether Stella and Desiree are going to reconnect. Um, wondering how that's going to happen, wondering if Stella is going to be found out and how that's going to happen. And having Stella return to Mallard, you know, re- reunite with her 
mother who has dementia and spend time with Desiree and then have it be that the, the, the purpose of that visit is to say, I have this life that is the only life that I know now and I need it preserved and I need you to stay away and I need, I, I like this can't happen again. I'm leaving or she doesn't even say that she's leaving. She just goes. And I, I just found that so devastating. It was just like uh, the the hollowness of the life that Stella has built for herself. And I, I felt like she's trapped by the life that she's built for herself because I don't think she wants to never see her sister again, but she doesn't know how to get out of the situation that she's in and still have the career that she has, have the, you know, the life that she's built, the satisfying parts of her life that she does want that, you know, keep her husband, stay, stay uh, connected to him. And I think ending the book that way was, uh, yeah, just really hit me. Yeah, given what we know about the complications of of relationships between yeah siblings, um, it was also really yeah really really saddening. How did you feel, Adam, when you, when you, when you finished reading it? How did you how did you feel? How did you remember feeling? I mean, very satisfied. I think uh, you know everything. The sadness that comes from it, everything felt earned. It didn't feel like that you know, there weren't any false notes. I didn't, I felt like everything that happened happened the way that it should have. But still this kind of desperate sadness for Stella. And, you know, I I think Desiree is going to be okay. But just knowing that there has been this kind of hole in her heart since her sister disappeared and almost, you know, having that scab picked by having Stella reappear briefly. And it just, you know, I, I found myself kind of wondering how that experience would affect her from then on. Yeah. 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 You know, what happens next for, for, for both Stella and for Desiree? I mean, Desiree rebuilding her life with this new job in a call center, living with early. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Adam. I think, yeah, she, she'll be okay. Uh, but Stella, I'm not so sure. Um, and Yeah. I'm not yeah. so sure about Stella. I don't, I don't, I'd rather, yeah, I think Desiree's going to be a bit happier. I mean, I don't know Mm -hmm. how long you can go pretending to be someone you're not in life and And be satisfied. Okay. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that is a lovely place to stop. I have, uh, you've been both been very generous with your time. So I, I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much, you guys. This was so, so much fun. Um, Lovely chatting uh, with I you. I really thank appreciate you. it. No, thank you for, thank you for the opportunity. I've just Thanks loved for having us. Loved re- rethinking through the story. I've just really enjoyed it. Actually, absolutely. Um, thanks again. Yes. Thanks awesome. for having thank us. Thanks so much, Adam. Bye. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye. That was great. Thanks again to Tanika and Alex. Their book, Mixed Up, Confessions of an Interracial Couple, is available as an audiobook right now on Audible, and it will be out in print from early April. So check it out. Uh, my inspirational artwork this week is super obvious. It's really just The Vanishing Half. I know that's a bit redundant, but I love this book so much. My attention span has been shot to shit over the last year, like everyone else's. Um... I really can't concentrate on anything, and reading has been really, really difficult for me, which sucks because I love reading, but The Vanishing Half really helped me to reignite my engagement with books because it's so, so great. I couldn't put it down. I read it in like a day, so you should read it too. You'll love it. I promise. Okay, and that's it. 
Remember, no new episode next week. Back with one the following week. In the meantime, tell all your friends about this show and get them to subscribe. It's a great way to connect with your friends. Uh, And other than that, stay safe, stay out of trouble, and until next time, bye. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.